Hi, this is Judy Collins, and on the Since You've Asked podcast, I'm talking not only to the founder of Elektra Records, Jack Holzman, but the man who recorded my first song I ever wrote, which became the name of my podcast, Since You've Asked. Please welcome the extraordinary Jack Holzman. relationship with Jack Holzman. He is, I think, my foremost, uh, <laughs> uh, I was enamored of him and his choices in music and the way he looked and talked and worked and his ability to put things together. It seemed to me that w- nobody had thought about. He he started his record label in in uh, as far as I know in 1952. But of course, this is after his childhood experience. Yeah, uh, the first record came out in in fifty uh, one, and it was songs of the Auvergne, as I recall. Uh, it was the Gene, Gene Ritchie was the second and the first phone record. Uh, this was new songs, and it was it was classically oriented. Yes. Now I explained to the artist. I said, "You're going to have a souvenir record. This is not the kind of music I'm going to go with." I think I'm I'm more tending toward folk music because I had been to exposed to so much folk music while I was at St. John's College. Uh, people had collections of records and I would borrow them. And I had a friend named Bob who uh, who had a, a nervous disease and couldn't quite easily handle the records going over the center hole on the turntable. So He'd scream Jack, and I'd go on down, and I'd sit and I'd listen to to artists like oh. uh, like Josh White and Burl Ives and people like that. And I came to love the simplicity of the folk song and yes. the ease with which it could be recorded. Yes, it was and amazing. That started. And that, and that was started. the revolution in music. People often say to me, what was it about that moment at the end of the uh, Eisenhower age, when suddenly everybody seemed to know that they were being lied to by the government. Everybody thought, oh, you don't need a 25-piece orchestra. You need a guitar and a voice and a subject. And that's, of course, what charmed me and brought me into folk music at about the same time. And like you, I had the experience. My father was in the radio business. He played he played the piano beautifully. He sang beautifully. He had a radio show from 1937 right on through. And talking about esoteric recording devices in our house, among other things, uh, well, of course, everything was in Braille. If he, if he did something for his engineer, he did it in on the typewriter, and then he wrote his script in Braille and sang and performed. But I remember walking into the living room at the age of about 14 and seeing a new contraption there. It was a wire recorder. Do you remember mm-hmm. wire recorders? And the piles of wire in the middle of the floor that nobody could untangle. 
Yeah. And so there we were. Talk about the first time. And now I want to talk about Josh White before we move on. Sure. Josh White, I was tw- eight, 19 years old when I worked with Josh White for the first time. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the first time I wa- worked with him many times through the years. But I walked into the Exodus in Colorado, and there he was. And the first song he sang me was Strange Fruit. Hmm. And he affected me and has till this day. Talk about how you found him and how he recorded him. He'd been blacklisted before you recorded him, I believe. That's exactly correct. I got a call from a lawyer who was his attorney saying, uh, someone said that you were interested in Josh White and I'd be happy to have him meet with you. But first I want to know that you will make the record if you, if you think the music and stuff is still there. And I had heard a lot of Josh White records, uh, but I don't want to disappoint him for, and I don't want you to say no because it's politically uh, incorrect these days to record somebody who performed for a Russian relief. The interesting thing about the Russian relief thing that he had done was that he had been invited by Eleanor President Roosevelt. Roosevelt. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt brought him. So Josh came by and uh, he brought his guitar and we sat and we talked and I told him, look, I'm just starting, but I would love to have an artist of your reputation and I'll knock myself out for you. And and so we went into the studio and recorded. And when he got up in front of the microphone, it was not the Josh White I heard on those records, which were terribly made. <laughs> I had it set up for him where there was an X mark on the floor and you stand there in relationship to that microphone, which is tilted especially for you. And it came out wonderfully. Mm-hmm. And he said he had never heard himself oh. on recordings. And oh. we were bound together. Oh. And we made about six or seven albums together. Yeah. Uh, and he was wonderful to work no, with. And he always had great. a girl sitting over there that he could sing to, <laughs> oh. which was great Josh inspiration. Uh, and it was... A friendship of enormous respect back and forth. And he would tell people about me. And uh, then he said, one day, I want to bring in a a bass player. I said, I don't have any money for it. He says, can you round up 50 bucks? I said, sure, I can round up 50 bucks. Uh, And then he brought in another friend for vocal. And I started working with all of these. We only had one microphone in those days. There were no mixers for people like me. We had to arrange the people in relationship to the microphone. And that was what controlled the various levels. And so we tested all of these. And then I pushed the record button. And when we heard the playback, I'm in tears right now as I think of it. But Josh cried. He said, I've never been recorded that well before. And it was, I had it. And then that was the Josh at Midnight record, the second record, the first 12-inch LP, which was an enormous success. By enormous success, I'm saying about 15,000 copies. But for a label uh, to be able to take in 30-some-odd thousand dollars on 
an album uh. when we were uh, were when we were just had just gotten out of debt. Uh. Thank God to uh. Uh, Theodore Bikel because I, had, yeah. I I was in a lot of debt at the time, ninety thousand yeah. dollars worth of debt before I took on Josh. Yeah. But Two Theodore Bikel records totally cured. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, which is why I gave at one point Theo a small piece of the company because yeah, of course. he of rescued course. me at exactly the yeah, time the I needed. Right, the right, the right time. Josh, Josh came into my life at the right time at Theodore Bikel. Came came into my life yes, at the right he was time. Special in your life. Yeah, and it was absolutely due to you, as many things in my life are due to you. And when I got tuberculosis in in '62, uh, he was the one who got me into the hospital in Denver National yes, Jewish Hospital because he was on the board of directors. And I also, as <clears throat> again thanks to you, I opened for him for Josh in 1962 in October and sang mm -hmm. at uh, Carnegie Hall with yeah. him and uh, opened the show. Going back to Josh for just a minute, people don't know, they don't realize about Josh White that he was uh, so close to the to the Roosevelts. He did he did some he did three state dinners at the White House mm -hmm. sang, singing for Theodore Roosevelt and Eleanor. And uh, oh. Eleanor and Theodore were the godparents to his son Josh Jr. And then Eleanor took him to Europe with her after the war, post-1944, and he spoke at these fundraisers for things like the Russian uh, organization that you described at first, you know, yeah. which got him blacklisted. I mean, this is so obscene, really. But what a magnificent person he was, and uh, we did many things together. But just to say thank you, because... From me, from all the people who love you and love Josh, thank you. Thank you for taking that step before it was fashionable or even people realized that there was such a thing as the blacklist. Well, there was no risk involved as far as I was concerned. What did I have to lose? What did you uh, have to lose? After Josh White, and we were sort of solvent and could make more records, uh, he he was an enormous contributor, and we worked with him for as long as he could sing. Yeah, as long as you could. So I came into your life, and you came into my life. Actually, you came into my life before I knew it. Tell us yes. about <laughs> tell us about that. <laughs> um, Bob Gibson, who was an electro artist, fine instrumentalist, good singer had known you, had met you, and he said, you know, there's a girl down in Denver, and you you ought to hear her. And I had no intention of going down to Denver. <laughs> uh, but he started talking more and more about you, and so I went down to Denver, and I did hear your performance, and I said, I remember what I said to myself, she's not ready yet. And I'll know she's ready if she comes to New York. I never oh, told you that part of the story. No, you yeah. didn't. <laughs> but, well, that's what happens when you're in preparation for one of these uh, <laughs> uh, talk fests, is that suddenly things pop up that you, that you forgot about yeah. decades ago. Yeah. And when I heard you, I knew you were right, and I made the offer. Uh, I also knew that you were reasonable. And I was going to be able to work with you because we were going to have scraps from time to time. And we did have one on the fifth album. Uh, but 
it would always work out. Somehow, yeah. some miracle would happen as it happened with that album. So when you and your producer, Mark Abramson, played it back to me, and I heard it, my gut told me that it wasn't finished. Yeah. And that we needed more songs to, to make sure that we had the fullest album uh, I hate a weak song anywhere because yeah. it pulls down the tonality yeah. and, and the emphasis of the album and you never know what's going to happen. But there was upset and there were tears and I felt guilty <laughs> and all of that. And you said to me about going out and finding more songs. Do you know how tough it is? I said, yes, I know how tough. <laughs> and then you spoke to your friend, Mary. Yeah. Oh, and yes. she introduced you to Leonard. Oh. And two weeks later, I get a call from you saying, oh, I met this most wonderful man. His name is Leonard and he's got great songs. And uh, you were right. He had great songs. We Boy, needed two songs and we got them both. We got Suzanne and we got Dress Rehearsal Rag. It's funny. Right, that's correct. When he came to see me, he said, I can't sing and I can't play the guitar and I don't know if this are song. these are songs. <laughs> and then he played me these two songs. The first one I fell in love with because it was about suicide, because I was very yeah. depressed at that time. You had your, well, <laughs> oh, I didn't I help lost. any with your depression, <laughs> even though uh, I think I was right to do what oh, I did. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you were right. Uh, yeah. But that's because I cared about you so much. I knew what your potential was. And we had hit it on the third album. Oh, we did indeed. So that the third the first album was sort of here I am, but I'm not going very far. The yeah. second album was <laughs> see how much further I went. And the third album with that picture on the cover right. made the difference between mm. people buying the record immediately on seeing yeah. or waiting to hear it on somebody yeah. else's turntable and then yeah. making the purchase. From that on from that point on with album number three, uh you were just wonderful to work with. And we had difficulties from time to time. Yeah. But they always ended up with a good Japanese or Chinese dinner. That's how we made peace. <laughs> That's how we made peace. A little sake and uh, yeah. a, a few yeah. a few green beans with, with yeah. seasonings. And, of course, throughout this time, Elector was growing. There were many artists that were coming on board. And I remember the day you called me to announce that you had decided, and this was a now a very strong, ongoing, very present album uh, company. Electra album was, Electra, the company Electra was already a magic name. And if you were involved with Electra, you were, you were golden. I mean, you, you already had Jack Holson behind you. And of course, between the wonderful producers that you had chosen, Mark Abramson in my case, and Paul Rothschild, of course. And Paul Rothschild was galloping around the world, picking up, finding things. And you called mm -hmm. me and said, I've got a, an interesting thing I want to play you. Tell us about The Doors. All right. Um, the Doors. Ah. Um, I was looking. I had recorded one, one rock band, Love. Mm -hmm. And Love was on the lead act on the bill at the Whiskey A Go-Go on Sunset Boulevard. And I went to hear them. And uh, they said, stay for the other act. 
if the group called the doors, you might you, you might feel something there. I think there's something there. So I stayed and I didn't get it. Uh, and so when I went back the next night, because I wanted to talk uh, with Arthur some more, he said, what did you think of the doors? And I said, I didn't hear anything. I heard a bunch of blues singing by uh, the band, what appeared to be the band leader, Jim, which wasn't everybody had equal uh, voice in that group, which was very, very good. Uh, but I didn't hear it. And he said, well, go back again. So I went back again and I still didn't hear it. Uh, but what I did hear was a perfection with the instrumentation. Yeah. And I wondered if they applied it to anything else. So I went back <laughs> one more night. Yeah. And then I heard what I was looking for. Uh -huh. And I knew that they could do it. Uh, Next Whiskey Bar was a, uh, was a Brecht Vial a composition yeah. and a rock and roll group doing this, but it was perfect. Yeah. And wow. So I went back and I talked to them. They said to me later, you were the only person who came and talked in whole sentences, <laughs> <laughs> which is something I've always treasured because they were probably right. Right off Sunset but Boulevard. When I said, they said, what, what, what inspired you? I said, Brecht Vile. Yeah. They said, you knew the Brecht Vile song? I said, absolutely. Of course. And so you knew it. We can we can do it. And we did it. And I said, have you ever been in a studio? And they said, just once to uh, make an audition record, which they gave me. And it had a couple of songs on there. Uh, but what I heard was a possibility, but I knew that there was only one producer yeah. that could draw it out. And that was yeah. Paul Rothschild, Paul, who was right. as smart as each one of them was, and he would do it. Yeah. And he said to me, it's going to require, he went and saw a concert. He said, it's going to require two weeks rehearsal. I need to find out everything that they've got and get them prepped. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And on the third week, we went into the studio. The album was made in one week. And we had all kinds of problems. Jim throwing things at, <laughs> at, the, uh, at the window that separated. Oh, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> the, uh, the recording portion of the studio was where everybody was standing and singing. But there was, but I paid attention to them, and something very interesting happened. I knew that Jim was a Frank Sinatra nut. Mm -hmm. And on the cover of one of his Capitol albums, he had a special microphone. Oh. I got a hold of one of those oh microphones my. and put it on Jim's mic. Uh, and he said, oh, my God. Uh, and he held it to his chest. Uh, it makes me cry just thinking yeah, about no. it. said, you kidding? You got me? Oh and my. after that, I that could was do it. wrong. That was it. That was it. It was it, it was so much fun to pay attention to the nuances of the artist. Absolutely. And their nuances told me so much about them. They were... They were remarkable. You called me to play me the music to, yes. I think, to get some sort of approval for, from me, which you did. Well, what I I wanted to see the reaction who, of someone who was song and folk song oriented 
to intelligent rock and roll. Yeah. And you embrace it immediately. You yeah. got it with that. Oh. And so I knew that I wasn't going to have to do any explaining because you re yeah. you realized the greatness yeah. of the album. Yeah, it was incredible. And then uh, the rest was history. The only but time on I... On that audition record that they had made was a song, Hello, I Love You. And my son, Adam, called me one day as they were making the third album. He said, you know, Dad, I was listening to that again. Hello, I Love You. I think it's a hit. He was 10 years old. Oh. I said, let me hear it. And so I heard it again. And I called Rothschild and said, Adam thinks this is a hit. And I think he's right. Get him to record it. He came back. They don't want to record it as an old song. <laughs> Humor me. It won't cost them anything. I'll pay for the whole thing. <laughs> and it recorded. It was recorded, and we put it at num. We put it at the front of the album, uh, and we had our biggest selling album of all time. Oh we went. We won a million copies. Oh my god! Made by that song. So my oh. son Adam was a natural from the beginning, and he's proven it ever since. He's proven it ever since. What an inspiration. And and uh, the only time I spent time with with uh, Jim Morrison was uh, at Big Sur with you. I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember this. And we all, well, I don't know about you. I don't think you ever drank all that much. But, but Jim and I managed to get pretty, pretty drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the name of the, of the place. The v v Ventura? No, something or other uh, in, in Big Sur. Well, that was, of course, an extraordinary place in the history of you and with Electra. And I think that it was 1964, if I recall, that you and I were taking a drive somewhere. And you said, you said to me, I'm starting a semi-classical uh, label. And I said, what is it? And you said, well, I, I said, you, he told, you told me about it. And then... I said, what are you going to call it? And you said, well, I have two choices. Mm -hmm. I have Caraval or Caraval, yeah. and I have none such. And, and I, what you said, <laughs> you didn't wait a microsecond. You said none such. It's none, it. It's it. <laughs> and you were absolutely right. I had conceived of it. Was, this was a, this was a label born of something I never forgot, which is when I was at St. John's College and LPs were 595 at that time, uh, I couldn't buy two. I could oh. only buy one and oh. I had to save up a month for that one, that one LP. And oh. I remembered it over the years and I was sitting, uh, we now go to 1963 and I'm waiting for my New York distributor to come and have dinner with me. And he's very, very late and I'm across from Carnegie Hall and they're having a Baroque concert. And I figured, I sat down at the tablecloth, which was a butcher paper. So it's very, very thick and started blocking out what Nonsuch was going to be. Oh. And I knew that I was gonna do three kinds of music. Yeah. I was going to do Baroque music because I loved it, yeah. because there wasn't enough of it. No. I was going to do electronic music because it was just starting. Uh. And I was going to do world music because I knew there was a lot of it out there in people's tape libraries that could never find uh, an outlet. Yeah. 
and we had all three going and it was the idea behind it was quality music at the cost of a quality paperback book, which was $2.50 in those days. And $2.50 was exactly half of the $5, five which was bucks. the price of the uh, yeah. LP. So we went with that. And I went and found, I, I had been collecting and tabulating reviews. And I had a stack of these. I knew where, where all of these records were in France and in the UK and in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went and, and made contracts with all of them. So I had yeah. all of this material coming in. Yeah. And then somebody walked in one day uh, saying he had some interesting uh, uh, indigenous music to play for us. And it was fabulous. That became music from the mornings of the world. The oh, titles were wonderful. They were you know, and the artwork. I just would sit back thinking about this stuff and yeah. something would pop into my head yeah. and I knew it was God given at that time. And then with the electronic music, we, we showed how electronic music was developing and yeah. then commissioned someone to do an all electronic record, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Oh my God. I didn't so know it that. Was, uh, the thing was to be adventuresome. It was so adventuresome. To produce, to produce recordings that people would never think think to do yeah. to move over recordings from the Electra catalog, which with Electra is becoming much a larger audience uh, oriented. Yeah, and uh, things just flowed. But there was a there was a period of real concern for me, and that was the period when folk music ended around 1960 uh, with the TV shows where everybody just clapped their hands and snapped their fingers. If that was going to be folk music, I didn't want any part of it. No, anymore. no. So I stopped recording. Uh, the, uh, the problem for me was that I didn't want to put out something that was airsots that was false in nature yeah. because whether anybody else noticed it, I would notice it. Of course. So I decided I'm going to sit and not release anything else. Yeah. What can I do with the time and the staff? Mm. So I came in one night when my wife Nina was uh, on television and there was a sound of a car crashing and it hit me. And I started looking around. Do we have any LPs of sound effects? Mm -hmm. None. <laughs> and so I pulled together these engineers and we did yeah. this series of 13 albums of sound effects. Yeah. And the first year we made netted over a million dollars on it mm -hmm. because there were no royalties. Yeah. No, no publishing royalties, <laughs> no artist royalties, just fees yeah. to the gentleman who were doing the work. Yes, yes. And we put this together so well and I knew that every radio station would have to buy a set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh so for $90, they got the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and it put in over a million dollars in our bank Into, accounts, bank which account. let yeah. me go to do things like the Butterfield Blues Band. Yeah, the Butterfield. That, oh, and, God. Paul and graduate from that. Kerner Rand Glover. Yeah. And then Love and then The yeah. Doors and... Then I yeah. made a list of it for myself because I don't always remember. But we had you, the Stooges, 
Yeah. Jim Buckley, Harry Jim Chapin, Buckley. Judy Collins. And me, me. Red, I came in there. I was lucky. Fred, <laughs> Carly, Simon, and Queen. And I want you to tell I want you to tell the story about Queen, but before I want to just touch briefly on a couple of other things. When Mark Abramson began to t to produce my records after you'd produced the first couple of, of records yeah. with me, Mark had been out there in the field recording the sound effects. And I just, yeah, I, I was of, able to grab Everybody him. was given a, everybody. a stereo mic. The first time stereo was done. Yeah. And, and, and we had recorders that we modified so that he could run faster speeds, higher definition sound effects, yeah, yeah. figuring that these would be around maybe for 10 years, but they're still around today. They're still around today. When, and they're still available. And when Mark and I began recording, you were always, always at the center of my recordings. And I would have, I would have long conversations with you about where we were, thought we were going, where we thought I was going anyway. And uh, it was always very positive. And then, of course, I didn't write any music when we first met. Yeah. And when I made my first, uh, I guess, five albums without yeah. one single Judy Collins record. And then it was album six where my feet hit the ground because actually, uh, album seven rather, because Leonard Cohen had asked me a simple question for a monk which he was a monk, certainly in practice. And he said, after he told me that I had made him famous of a, because of our recording of Suzanne. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, that's very nice. I'm glad you're famous. That's very good for all of us. And he said, well, but I want you all to be singing my songs. He wasn't going to sing anything. Yeah. He, he told me he had a terrible voice. And uh, I said, it's not terrible. It may be a little obscure, but it's not terrible. And I pushed him on stage at Town Hall in 1967, I guess, and made him sing with me. And he finally got it when the audience went crazy. Mm -hmm. However, he then said to me, I want you to be recording my songs all the time. And I said, well, I surely will be, which I have been all, all the time. And uh, but he said, I don't understand why you aren't writing your your own songs. And so my first song came out. I went home. I scrambled home, went to my piano, which I still practice to this day. And I always have. And since I was 21 and out came since you've asked that song. Mm -hmm. So on the next album, which was called Wildflowers, Right. I was lucky enough to get to know Josh Rifkin because of Nonesuch and because you had found Josh Rifkin and and nurtured his incredible gifts along many lines. Another great story. <laughs> Another. Tell about that because I am a great Josh Rifkin fan. Well, Josh Rifkin was a harmonica player in a band. Uh which we recorded and he seemed to like the music business and he would pop around the rec come around the office and he looked at he look at things on people's desk <laughs> and he said what's this none such this is the same time i'm not telling you what it is and i'm not telling anybody yeah uh, he said i saw a composer's name there but it's misspelled oh i said 
which composer and <laughs> what's the correct spelling? And he said this. And I said, where do you, <laughs> you're a kazoo player. Where do you, <laughs> do you have education in this director, this direction? He said, yes, I've been in Holland for a couple of years and, uh, and studying. And I said, well, none such as an experimentation. We're going to do a fair amount of Baroque music. Uh, I would like you to listen to it and check to make sure notes are correct and things of that type. So he, so he had a, a com something like a job. He got a, uh, we sent him a couple of hundred dollars a week, mm -hmm. uh, but he was there for us. And then he became more and more helpful. And when none such exploded, which was about uh, 45 days after it was launched, nothing yeah. happened for the first three months. And I thought, my God, I made this terrible mistake, but I don't believe I have. I mean, it seems to the world that I haven't got yeah. it done, but I got it right. Uh, and then suddenly we, we couldn't ship enough because we, what we did was we married the idea of a record label to a book, um. which was that none such records were quality were quality recording oh, yeah. at the price of a quality paperback. Paperback, yeah. So the fact that it was a quality paperback rubbed off on the idea. And from that first ad on, we were off and running. Anyway, he turned out to be absolutely essential over the essential, years. And yeah. uh, he did recordings for you. And he was very, very helpful to me. And then one day he said, you know, nobody's recorded any rags. Oh, yes. And, and I said, well, I know you play the piano. Can you do it? He said, sure. Yeah, and yeah, so he yeah. He made the first rags album and it sold hundred some odd thousand in the first few months. Yeah. And we were off and running and uh, yeah. he just was phenomenal. And he wrote many arrangements for you. So this yes, kid he did. former kazoo player and <laughs> turns out know. to be this turns out to be this miraculous person who helps all of us so much. He taught me so many things. I got a letter from him not long ago where he recounts what it is he thought he learned from me, but it was you listen to everybody because you just don't know when the good idea is yeah, coming. You don't know. And he was, of course, he was the the orchestrator on uh, since you've uh, on uh, the 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 album number six, which was in my life, yeah. and uh, he orchestrated that for me. And we had realized, I guess, right away when we started talking about recording Pirate Jenny. Which I think is, in my life was number five. Number five, or uh, anyway, in my life was uh, included Pirate Jenny and the the music from the Marat Saad. And all of this, of course, you and I talked about, and then we rounded up Josh Rifkin, and he said, by all means, I'll be happy to do that. We went to England to record some of this because yeah. we were so compelled to to uh, to get at the essence of why it was that the music from the Marat Saad was working so well. And then we came back here, and um, that was the in the next album that he did with me, um, I had... By that time, I had written "Since You've Asked" and mm -hmm. uh, an album. Since song. You've Asked is, is a title that just begs you to listen. It does, and also I had written uh, "Albatross," 
And yes. then there was another song which I often say died a worse a, a, a an earled an earned early death, uh, which I don't sing anymore. But those three songs of mine were on wildflowers. And when we came to the point where we had to record both sides now, we were back in New York. I think it was Columbia Studios. And Josh was there, of course. And he he suddenly said in the middle of the the, uh, session, he said, I need a harpsichord. And we brought him a harpsichord. It was a real harpsichord. It wasn't a pretend makeup, you know, make up the sound electronically. It was a real harpsichord. And so he did this figure, da, 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 on the harpsichord. And that, I, I, th- I wonder if you'd agree with me. I think that signature sound was instrumental as well, of course, as my I'll, I'll say shyly, I'm sure that I sang it well, but it was that that harpsichord that just set me off into singing it in a certain kind of way. Well, you, I think after album number four or five, everybody expected you to come up with something wild and wonderful and different, mm-hmm. and you never you never disappointed them to detail and people don't think about this i i know that i always felt that i was lucky to be within earshot and present uh presence of you because you were always thinking ahead you were always thinking of what was going on and how to make these things work better you know all these all these times i think about your your diligence with every aspect of the process. It's not just finding the song and recording it. It's how do you get out there and sell it? I've I always learned from you. One day you called me and you said, get yourself ready. I'm going to pick you up. We're going to New Jersey. We're going to visit the Rackers. We're going to have lunch with them, mm-hmm. which we did. And you said to me, these are the people that get your records out to the public. And you have to recognize, you have to acknowledge them. And I, I thought to myself then, and I still do, you know, this is, this is the place where we understand that all steps of the ladder have to be covered. You had a knack for coming up with material that I couldn't come up with. You found it, you wrote it, you knew how, what the next step had to be if you couldn't describe it. You had it emotionally built into you, and you would respond to that, which is one of the reasons I think you're such a great artist to this day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I was fortunate because you were there with me from the store, and I don't know where these uh, impulses come from. You have them. I have them. Some of us have them. Most people have them, but sometimes they don't get a chance to have them blossom. I think that's very true. I think in in the in the scope of the lives that we've had, we've seen many people who've blossomed, some who've crashed, some we've lost, some who don't find it. But I was lucky to have that. I'll never forget it because you are and always have been a part of my artistic development and the way I think about things, the way sometimes I don't have to think about them because these instincts were nurtured with you. And so I had that you know, uh, the ability for certainly at times to fly. Uh, You know, now I just want to talk a bit about some of these further artists that came along in Electra. 
in your amazing development of your own taste and your own choices and the, the way the company involved, because you told me most recently the story of Queen, and I'd love you to tell it on, on this uh, conversation we're having. Okay. Um, well, Queen was the last artist I signed to Electra. We were going, we were doing phenomenally well. Uh, we had lots of great artists. We had started billboards on the Sunset Strip, oh, which yeah. everybody thought was crazy, and then everybody else was doing it. <laughs> uh, one day, I had a call uh, from a gentleman saying that he represented Trident Records in uh, London. They, I knew they were a studio, and he said they wanted to set up a label in the United States, and they wanted us to run it. Well, I knew that wasn't going to happen, <laughs> but I, I said, let me hear the music. And he came in and set 10 uh, giant reels of tape up on my desk and said, well, this is the kind of music we're going to do. And I looked at it and just went <laughs> my head uh, because I knew I wasn't going to do it. Uh, what happens in these cases is that you put up all the money. Yeah. Uh, you detract from the work you need to do with your artists. You have to add staff. Uh, you lay all the money out and you only get half the profits. But I said, let me listen to the material anyway, which was if I hadn't said that, things would have been quite different. So he gave me uh, and I said, I'm going to pick three. And I sort of picked two <laughs> at Magic and there was nothing there. Then I looked at the titles and one said Queen. I said, that's interesting. That's interesting. And I listened to it and I said, it's not ready, but it can be released and there are two or three really fine songs on this and I'm just going to take a shot with this group. Uh, then I found out that Clive Davis of Columbia was introduced in, interested in this group, but I knew how he was going to do it. He was going to have somebody who uh, who did double duty, uh, cleaning the uh, uh, the bathrooms as well as being a youthful A and R guy. <laughs> uh, but I had put this on and heard it, and I went back to them and said, uh, "I can't do the other, but." you need a fast release of this album and I can guarantee it for you. And the conditions are that we have a five-year contract, one album per year, uh, and we'll go from there later on. But what I will do for you is guarantee that we will send you our contract, which is very simple. It's a couple of pages with a thing that's called the, fine, the small print attached to it, which has all kinds of humor built in to what the facts of the contract actually were. Uh, and so I, uh, I sent it on to him to take a look at. And then I said, I want to come meet the band. So I went over to England to meet the band and spent three days with them. Then I sent my art director. Then I sent uh, the lady who was doing uh, artist relations. So they saw three different people and we each stayed with them for three days. And then uh, they said, well, you know, we're still waiting for the Columbia deal. I said, I don't know how long you're going to wait, but I'm not going to wait. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
I said, I'll send you a draft of the contract. And I sent the draft of the contract, which was a, a letter, a page and a half, which told them everything that they got. And uh, explained the number of records and, and how it worked. And it had a thing called the small print attached to it, which had lots of little jokes, but was all <laughs> of the boilerplate. Uh, it, one was... Uh, Label uh, executives will treat artists with love and attention, and uh, artists will treat label executives with a modicum of respect. <laughs> well, and then as I was sending it off, I said to myself, I've got to nail this because I just have a hunch about this band. I just have a hunch. I'm hearing windows to great songs is basically what I was betting yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And then I took out my checkbook and wrote a check for $25,000 and signed it without <laughs> a signed contract and sent it off to them, figuring <laughs> these guys don't have any a money. A <laughs> $25,000 check deposited to their account and yeah. signed this contract yeah. from a label we respect. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It's an extraordinary story. Uh, uh, about a year later, uh, I, I have a wonderful letter from Freddie, which I've, I don't know whether I have it around here, but which I respect that he it was just a beautiful letter where he thanked me for getting everything done and for keeping every promise that we made. Oh, my. It's extraordinary. And, and then his yeah. manager yeah. was later to say, and in our business, that's almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost impossible. And I think your history I think you once told me that you've never been sued and you've never sued. And nope. that's an incredible piece of remarkable <laughs> uh, thing. Because I must, mod I must modify that by, uh, because after I said that, I remembered a story of two guys walking in one day with a Theodore Bikel, uh, no, with a, uh, an Israeli album. Yes. <laughs> of these performers in Central Park, and their photograph is in the corner. Their oh. picture is in the corner of the album, and they came to sue, and sue me. Oh. And I said, gentlemen, I'll tell you what. You each go pick 10 records you love oh. and walk out the door, and that's it. <laughs> okay, 10 free records, wow. And they yes. picked up 10 free records, they went out the door, and we never heard from them again. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Since You've Asked podcast.